podcast world. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and in this special bonus episode, we'll be talking to a filmmaker, visual artist, director, and Caribbean and Jamaican storyteller, Storm Salter. Storm, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great, man. Respect. How are you doing? Respect, nice, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, Storm... You grew up in Negril, Jamaica, and now you're somewhat of a world-renowned filmmaker. Would you say so? I'm getting there. You know, <laughs> I'll say step by step, I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully. Yeah, I see you got Will and Jada Smith mm. endorsing and executive producing your stuff mm. now. Yeah. But I want to get to the beginning of this. Imagine we're, you're directing a movie right now, and we're looking at, let's see. Eight-year-old storm in his house in Negro, Jamaica. Yeah. What am I seeing? Because I understand your parents encourage creativity in all of your siblings. So I'll tell you, like in my household, they encourage academics. You know, you got you got to do well in school. It's very you know structured in that in that aspect. So what was it like in your house? Was it like playing with Legos, drawing cartoons, comic books? What was it like? Yeah, no, we were definitely like running kids that were running around out in nature. We grew up on the west end of the grill, on the cliffs. So right across from where we grew up, when I was born, was deep ocean. And uh, me and my brother, Niall, who is my younger brother, we we're both quite close in age, and we were both filmmakers also. But we were kind of the two young boys, the, the seventh and, and eighth of eight children at the time. Eight children, you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we were kind of just left like, yeah, man, y'all can figure it out. So I remember a lot of just adventure, going, getting lost in bush, going mango bush, running a boat with your friend. Them as well. when you say run a boat, you mean like cook a big pot of food. And I definitely remember having this feeling, just kind of adventure and freedom. Like we could cover a lot of ground in that time as young youth. So, and that's not something I think a lot of young children have that much freedom and space to roam. And we certainly did. And then um, my parents definitely encouraged creativity. They were artists in their own right. Not that they didn't encourage academics, but thankfully they kind of were a bit of alternative living people. And they kind of saw that there was different ways to do things. And so whatever we were really interested in, they always put their efforts behind. Okay. So was it that you're always passionate about the creative arts and storytelling and everything? Or yeah. like, how was that born? I mean, that was just a natural instinct within me. I always related to the storyteller. You know, every neighborhood, definitely in Jamaica, you always have a neighborhood storyteller. In fact, <laughs> every group of people, even your family, any group of people that hang out at a certain shop or a certain place, there's always at least one in there that is the storyteller that that relishes the drama in the story <laughs> and that tells the story so well and makes everyone laugh. That is like a, a sacred um, role in our communities. And I always recognized that person and I saw myself as a bit of that person, but I ultimately leaned towards telling my stories through image and through visual art, you know. You know, funny you say that that person is a sacred person because that person could be a dangerous person. When you have the ability to tell stories, compelling stories, embedded within those stories might be a little bit of untruth. Yes, of course. <laughs> and you know those things could yeah, put people yeah. in a tricky situation. You know, they say print the legend, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, mm. like, so a storyteller will always tell the legend, you know, they, they're not going to make it sound small, they're going to make it sound big and dramatic. And yeah. uh, 
that is all how a lot of our history has been passed down as well. That that person played all a role, also a role of passing the history along. So I always related to that person and I wanted to use the most powerful medium that I could to tell those stories ultimately. And that is, to me, filmmaking is, is that. Yeah, I mean, and that's how you make things stick. I mean, a good story, yeah. that's timeless, right? It's timeless. It'll outlive all of us, you know? That's right. So, yeah. And I guess that's what you try to do with your movies as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, for me, I, I feel like, you know, because I, I went to film school in the U.S. I worked in L.A. and in New York as like a production assistant running around, getting coffee, doing whatever I had to do. You know, <laughs> I, I did that for a while. And, uh, and, I, and I also started to build up myself you know, as a young creative in the U.S. here and there. But when I went back to Jamaica, I remember to renew a visa. So it just hit me. I was like, why am I rushing to get back to America to ch- go try tell stories or work my way up that ladder when look at what is here in front of me, my the place I know and I love, but also this fresh this landscape to be shown cinematically. I think the Caribbean is an exciting place to be making visual art and, and film right now because We've had a few films and we've had some great ones, but it's only so many. There's a lot to be created. Okay. So you, maybe from age, what, 19, 20 or so, you decide to just go to film school. Was it, was it that easy? Nah, man. Earlier, earlier. I knew I was interested in being a filmmaker probably since I was like 13, 14. Okay. Yeah. I actually started film school when I was 16. I turned 17 at film school and... I was finished by the time I was about 18. So this is film school abroad? Yeah, I went to the Los Angeles Film School. Oh, from a, from since you were a teenager? Yes, yeah, a teenager. Okay. So, you know, I finished high school pretty young in Jamaica. So, yeah, I went early, got through it early, got out early. Because, you know, you really learn. I know a lot of film people that never gone to film school. You just learn on the job. Right. And uh, so the quicker you get into the real life experiences, the quicker you get into it. And I spent a lot of time working on set as soon as I was out of school and just learning from other people, learning from people who took me under their wing and kind of learning how to speak this, the language, you know, how, what certain shots meant. I'm really a visual person. You know, some people come from the writing side. Some people come from the visual side. I come from the visual side and I've become a writer because the stories I want to tell are not, the script doesn't exist. So I have to go write it, but I'm really naturally a visual person and, always trying to perfect my use of the image and the moving image to tell the most compelling stories in the most efficient way. So, yeah, and that came from photography. I mean, to be honest, I was always into painting and drawing. I remember my parents getting me a still camera. I remember being obsessed with composition and interested in, like, certain types of painting and things that kind of broke down the image. And the goal was, how can I tell the most compelling story in a single frame? And then that moved to how can I move the frame and tell the most compelling story? And then ultimately that led to directing and writing. Okay. That's some cool stuff, man. Okay. So, all right. So back to what you're saying. So you finish a film school, you're in LA. Yeah. So you're thinking about getting a visa to stay there. Be like, no, Jamaica land we love. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't even so clear cut. I actually left LA. I, I linked with a director X at the time. His name was little X was, you know, Canadian of Trini descent. All right. Great music video director and film director. And he took me under his wing and he saw talent in me and encouraged me to move to New York. So I moved to New York. I worked on music videos with him. And all of the time I was writing a feature script. I left there and moved to Miami for a while, developing a feature script for the 
investor who eventually became my main investor in Better Must Come, which was my first movie. His name was Joshua Bratter. And he encouraged me to move to Miami to develop an earlier script. So I was kind of bouncing around, always trying to get closer to making a film. And I actually had a visa and the visa ran out. Oh, good. So I had to, <laughs> to work to get back the visa. But it was on that journey back and on that time back in Jamaica where I had been so kind of exposed to contemporary art and to certain types of filmmaking. And I was almost seeing Jamaica in, with new eyes and with new like narrative understanding. I made some like experimental pieces and I just was inspired. Also, there was a hurricane that slowed down the whole process of me getting the visa. And by the time all of that passed, I was like, yo, I'm going to figure out how to make it happen here. And I started to connect with other filmmakers in Jamaica and ultimately started a mission that uh, is bearing a lot of fruit now, you know, because um, not only is, you know, my work getting to a certain phase, but the Jamaican film industry has grown quite rapidly and uh, it's on the cusp of some great stuff as well. Just to give some context to the listeners, what music videos would you have worked on with Director X? Excuse Me Miss, which was Jay-Z and... was the Pharrell? Jay-Z and... Pharrell. Yeah, Jay-Z Pharrell. We did some videos with... I remember we did a video with Wycliffe John and Buster Rhymes and some other folks. There's a few videos, man. I worked on a few sets. First video that we linked up with was Donnell Jones and Styles P from The Locks. They did a video that was shot in Jamaica. I don't know what I said to X at the time because I, I was on a location scout with him. And I must have said something to impress him because he's, he said, hey, man, you know, let's give this kid a camera and bring him along. And next thing you know, I'm going from meeting this person who I thought was really great to shooting some of the piece. So there's been a, there was a bunch of things I worked on. And I could have stayed in that music video world. And I have directed other music videos, you know. Yeah. I directed Protégé and Chronics, Who Knows, which is a big record. We just pass over 100 million views on YouTube. I just used to say that every year just saying that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I play in those worlds, but my world has always been narrative, you know. And it's good to know that uh, a Trini actually gave you your, um, <laughs> your lift off. Yeah. They got to director X on that. Okay, so you got your big film debut when Better Must Come came out, right? This is yeah. 2010. Yeah. You know, they say that it takes years and years before you get that overnight success. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process in terms of you know, conceptualizing a movie, filming that movie and everything. Yeah, I mean, well, we better must come, first of all, you know, I kind of stumbled across that whole story of politics and gangs in the 1970s in Jamaica. And my parents told me about the 70s and how wild it was. But I didn't really realize that Jamaica was fully destabilized in the 1970s because we don't learn that in history. We learn about some old English wars and these things, but nobody don't tell us about really? the things that have happened in our immediate, you know, post-colonial times. And when I came across that, yeah, I didn't learn about it in school and it, it has affected us so much as a nation. So I said, okay, and I'm interested in geopolitics and those types of things. So, so I jumped into Better Must Come and made that and the film slowly but surely did festivals. We won at the Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival the um, audience award and that led to other things and eventually led to the film getting distribution in the U S and, and getting out there and uh, getting my name out there as well. And in the interim, I had a bunch of projects going on I had a bunch of projects I was thinking about and sprinter wasn't even the first one. There were others that I had actually written to a certain point and developed a certain point, but I just knew something about 
what was happening in the world of track and field with Usain Bolt and Shelly and Fraser Price and these legends. Also, I knew I wanted to tell a story of a teenage boy kind of going from 17, 18 to becoming a young adult and figuring out that time. Right. And uh, it took me years of going to workshops, of going through different types of processes to get the script to a point. I'm a commercial director as well, worked quite a bit with Usain Bolt and with other athletes, with Puma, other high school athletes. And basically all this time, just building this knowledge about how I was going to put together this film and building relationships that I was going to be able to pull on at the right moment. So it's like everything had to come together at the right moment for the script of Sprinter to be great, for us to have the sign-on of Usain Bolt and Puma, for Will and Jada to be in a certain place where they wanted to put their energy behind emerging voices in cinema and to have the opportunity to put that script in front of them and their team. It was years in the making of things coming together, but once it came together and they saw that script, our first investors, they came in, other investors came in and we just kind of moved on it, you know? So That's nice, man. Yeah, it takes a while to build a momentum, but you'd be surprised once you take a step towards something, how quickly it can come to you. Yeah, I know you say you take one step towards something, that thing takes two steps towards you. Yeah, yeah. very true. I know you... Um you had Sprint to conceptualize maybe since 2015. And at least. Yeah, so it's like four years, almost four years later. Yeah, this movie is about to come out next week. You know, that's some good stuff. But I want to talk about Better Must Come just for a couple more minutes because I know that you actually made that movie on your laptop. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, right? So I think it's important for people out there, right? So a lot of people want to create their own films and stuff. And now, well, the technology has, of course, advanced so much since then. But in terms of the resources available, and you, and you spoke about investors a little bit just now, in terms of the resources and the funding available to make a world-class movie, a movie that is up to the standard where people want to look at. Because I looked yeah. at Better Must Come yesterday, granted on YouTube, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pirate a movie. <laughs> but I looked at it last night, just part of my research and stuff, and I was like, but this movie is awesome. I was, I'm yelling at my screen, you know, I'm just yeah. like, no, no, kill me, do it, wait, 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 you know? And to me, yeah. I, I, what I loved about it too is that it was raw Jamaican. It's not watered down. They try to make it crossover or anything to say, okay, they have to make it relatable to the international market or whatever. It's your Jamaican, yeah, your yeah, Patwa. Yeah. And like, this is what things were like in Jamaica in the 1970s, especially around election time and everything. And it really connected with me. So tell me about in terms of getting the resources to make that movie and, and how are you able to be resilient yeah. enough to get that movie out there? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, man, you see, when you're trying to do something and your whole life is about it, you get superhuman strength, you know? And um, from a creative standpoint, with um, Better Must Come, I wrote it, I directed it, I was director of photography, and then I ended up editing it as well. Obviously, I had help with from some folks, but, you know, like, even just to take that on and to end up doing all of that, it shows you that, like, it's just a level of determination. And I was holding the camera a lot of the times. I was running with a steady camera a lot of the times. Even physically, there were just things I was doing that I, I don't know. It's just adrenaline that was pumping. And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, because people aren't expecting necessarily to see this film of a certain quality just coming from the region, it's not like it's a set up easy situation to make it happen. You have to do it on your own almost. You have to you know, work it on your own. And for me at the time, there was a group of filmmakers and crew and actors that we had worked with on short films, on commercials. So we had kind of a, a decent working unit. And 
another thing about that was coming was a period piece, right? So mm-hmm. we had to take a very tight budget and then stretch that even further in terms of making it believable the 1970s with cars and clothes and uh, everything. And um, we were just so committed and everyone was so determined to make a great work from the actors to everything. We moved mountains, man. And it was like that all the way. You know, first people thought that we were making some political movie and calling up certain people's names so that people on set spying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we were talking about the 1970s. A lot of bad things went on then. You know what I mean? So we kind of just forced through and eventually the film got edited and finished and eventually made to festivals and the audience just kind of took it from there and it won and it kept winning and kept winning until eventually Ava DuVernay had heard about it. People kept mentioning it to her. And then she was about to launch a company that a distribution company array. So again, that film kind of lined up with another person that was also building steam with their own energy. And you can see where Ava DuVernay is at now, you know, and Betham has come kind of aligned with their mission at one point and they launched that company with that film. So I've been very lucky and blessed to kind of, if you put in the hard work, then sometimes, sometimes opportunities open up. And, and if you're ready, that means if you did all of that work to get ready, you can slip in there. And I've felt that a few times throughout my career, you know. And also you have to be brave enough to like give young actors a chance to do stuff. It doesn't always have to be some known person. You have to kind of work hard on your casting exactly. and give. Because when you discover new people that really do something new for the first time, that's great. When you introduce the world to a new talent, it means a lot, man. You know what I mean? It means a lot because everybody started somewhere, you know. So Better Box Farm was a labor of love in the truest sense. It was a guerrilla film in the truest sense. But I hope that it spoke to something larger. And, uh, you know, that was a, a thing was to analyze our political and social situation and, and what things made big changes for us and see how we can come to terms with those changes. Yeah, because, all right, so it showed it showcased, you know, the poverty again. It showed the whole electoral division and everything. Socialists versus the communists and everything. Yeah. Well, also what I realized, I, I learned, is that you, you shot this movie in the actual communities. You didn't, it wasn't a, a created set. It wasn't a manufactured anything. You got your, no. you actually got, you actually went a step further and you got your actors to live in the communities for a little while just so they could really understand, really live and breathe that air. Yeah, yeah. And have ownership because things like that, familiarity, even knowing how close the shop is, that you have to cross this yard, that yard, that yard before you turn down here and there. Once you are even familiar with how you move, and as an actor, you have a certain naturalist, naturalness, you know what I mean, with your body and with your physicality and with your ownership over your space. And that's the thing, you know, in especially tight-knit communities where people have to stay oftentimes within their boundaries, they're very familiar. And I just wanted to have the actors get into a frame of mind where they felt that ownership and that, that something like that they'd really live and die for this community because that's what they're portraying. They're portraying people that are the protectors of their community. I really love, you know, I love directing actors and I love how um, like, like messing around and finding great little nuanced moments with talent. Okay. I'm actually developing a project right now. It's an ad- adaptation of a novel, John Crow's Devil by Marlon James. It's an amazing story about a, a village basically. And the village has so many characters that, are so kind of deep and raw and exciting. And I'm just excited about like 
giving some actors these roles to bite into and seeing where we go with it, you know. Some local actors, some Jamaican Yeah, and just being complex, you know what I mean? Like giving people complex, nuanced characters to jump into because that's who we are, you know. And, and, and because Caribbean culture is so exciting and beautiful to listen to and look at, we kind of get typecast or, you know, we kind of, there's certain stereotypes that emerge. So as much as people know our culture and love it, they also only think it's a certain number of things. And I want to obliterate that idea by showing a much wider array of people existing. You know what I mean? And with different motivations. Yeah, a lot more than the sun, sea, and sun, right? Exactly. Yeah, precisely. I get you. I get you. Okay, so 2010, Better Must Come comes out. And I know you spoke about the long gestation period it took between conceptualizing Sprinter and actually getting it on screen. Yeah. But how was it sourced and the talent yeah. for that? I mean, I, I know you, your lead actor is quite popular on Instagram, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's quite popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, with him, he's the only non-actor, first-time actor in the film. But we found him in an interesting way. We were looking you know, to get someone who could play a 17-year-old, someone who was a really a runner, because you can't take an actor and um, train them for a couple of months and think they're going to look like a sprinter, because they won't. So we had to find someone who really was a sprinter. And what was interesting about Dale Elliott is when we actually, when I came across him on, on Instagram and then invited him to audition and we started speaking about the character and about, you know, it's being this young man who whose mom leaves to work away on a visa and is supposed to come back but doesn't come back. He said to me, like, hold on, so what, somebody told you about my story? Like, is this based on my life? Or something? I was like, what are you talking about? And then I started to learn more and more about his actual life and the fact that he was raised by his grandparents because both of his parents left when he was very young to work and to live in the U S and work and live in the UK and work and I guess support him from there. So he had lived through this. I said that, so for me it became interesting because I'm like, okay, this guy is fresh, you know, he's green. However, he's lives the truth of this. And because of that, he's probably going to bring something to this that a performer may try to perform. Yeah. Whereas he may just have, he may just exist, this, this kind of toughness. And so it was just interesting and, and serendipitous finding him. And then a lot of the other actors are people that I just saw on the local theater scene or other scenes. I just knew I wanted to give them something to bite into. And then the international talent like David Allen Greer, Lorraine Toussaint, etc. They, you know, we always knew there were some roles that could have kind of worked with some heavy hitters. And uh, through Overbrook and some of our links there, we were able to reach out to some of those folks and get them involved, you know, and okay. bring it all together. That's some good stuff. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you, you speak about the barrel trail, the barrel picnic, as you know, you can say. I mean, so I did my studies in Mona, right? Yeah. So I studied banking and finance, right? So in almost every economics class, they speak about a 50% of Jamaica's gross domestic product, 50% of the income generated in Jamaica is actually from remittances. It's actually from the remittances. Yeah, coming from abroad. So so it's almost so real and it ties in so much with, you know, like the real Jamaican story. Exactly. But what also, because I was able to see the screener thanks to your publicist. All right, so what I also noticed in that movie though, that's kind of, kind of shook me away, right? So again, like I mentioned that I lived, yeah. I lived in Jamaica for a few years, right? Yeah. Is that vulnerability in Jamaican men? Yeah. You know, you don't usually see yeah. that. In my three years there, I, don't, I can't tell you that I saw a Jamaican man cry. 
Yeah, it's an unusual thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the movie, yeah. in the movie, I saw it happen twice. I was yeah. like, okay, look at that. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's real, man. Um, as as men, the kind of prevailing thought about how we're supposed to process emotion is to suck it up, to not show any kind of weakness or showing, you know, crying or being too emotional is a form of weakness. And certainly, Jamaican men do prescribe to this very manly, macho approach. And we suffer, us and the, those around us suffer the consequences, you know, mm-hmm. because um, a lot of times you're not making your truest decisions based on your feelings. You're making them based on this, it's a reflection of what you think your feelings should be. Right. But it doesn't matter if that's what's going on. You can't escape your emotions. It comes out in other ways. And I mean, even in the sprinter, when, Garfield, you know, his father yeah. is dropping the mom at the airport and has that moment where, the, you know, he tears up. You know, it's a premonition. It's a thing. He's a man who see, he knows it's not going to be as great or he senses something. And I think it's powerful. I think scenes where the brothers and the dad and the grandson are sitting around the table and just trying to catch up. I realize that it's just simple. It's a family sitting around. For some reason, when you place it on the screen and you look at these men kind of relating, trying to relate, trying to appreciate, trying to gel. There's something real powerful in that image, man. More powerful than you'd imagine. There's something about even with this film I've noticed with the audience. It's just a simple family story. You know, things happen. There's a race, there's track and field, there's exciting elements, but ultimately it's just kind of a family trying to navigate their way forward, trying to hold it together. Things don't always go how they planned it. Things fall apart a little bit, but they still are kind of trying to get going. And that just seems like normal life. And you think, oh, maybe is that really worth making a movie about just regular life? But in the, at the end, when you try to just depict people of color in these extreme circumstances all the time, you think that's what everyone is living. Everyone is living this life and their thing, and that's not the case. So I wanted to show something that was more realistic, less forced, less relying on extremes. But in doing so, I wanted it. I feel like it's a little more radical because it's showing the normalcy of, of life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, also you know, you're showing men falling down and picking themselves back up and trying to pick themselves back up. And you're showing that the women always being, yeah. having to be a bit tougher, more sensible, always knowing what to tell, knowing, you know, being there. You see women that you assume, you know, are going to be kind of sexual symbols and they end up flipping that on its head. So I'm always trying to play with what you assume gender dynamics and so on should be and kind of flip it because we're way more complex than, than what, you know, one would have people believe. Yeah, man, I'll definitely say that movie was extremely well written. It was well, well casted Respect. and everything. You know, I saw, I say, I see Hakim from, um, yeah, from Empire, man. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gray. yeah, he has. yeah. You know, that's good stuff, man. All right. So, in terms of the industry itself, right? The filmmaking industry itself. Do you see a like a bigger opportunity out there? Like what needs to happen for this to be realized? I mean, for me, I think that there's a there's major opportunity because there's a major need for content, right? And there's a lot of avenues. There's a need, lot of need for original content. There's massive companies that are going into streaming, trying to take on the Netflixes and Amazons and all of them and and there are, of course, the Netflixes and the Amazons. And there's a large need for unique original content. And thus, there is money to develop these things. And as I think these companies are learning, you cannot control and gain massive followings with the same 
Hollywood only stuff. You need to have diverse storytelling stories from diverse places if you want to have audiences from diverse places. So I think a massive opportunity is opening up. I think the key to it is making quality. You know, it's not like we're like a, a nation or a region like say Nigeria that makes a ton of films, but also has a pretty massive local population that can come out in their numbers and actually the economy of those films works in a contained kind of way or India. We don't have those necessarily numbers, so we have to make our work for the global audience all the time. I think it's just a matter of filmmakers getting their scripts better and being brave enough to experiment and kind of come with our own kind of aesthetic. You know what I mean? Because, you know, we're used to consuming content from the typical sources and thus we create stories in the image of how we have consumed them. And thankfully, there's breakout filmmakers that are kind of shifting that. You know what I mean? And I think we're getting braver and more brave to create our own voices. I think um, for me, it feels like there's a new wave, like how they've had great French film and Eastern European film and Mexican cinema and Brazilian cinema. I feel like the Caribbean is um, the next one that's coming with the freshness. But hey, what? So, I mean, a lot of my friends, they are big Narcos fans. So they will sit down and binge on that and just be reading Spanish. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, reading yeah. Spanish subtitles right through. So, I mean, really and truly, people try to water down their stuff for the broader world, for the London and, and the USA, but really actually they want to see what we have. Yes, exactly. And, and films and projects like Narcos have broken down the whole subtitle barrier because everybody's watching Narcos and you're reading the subtitles and no one's complaining. And ultimately it was only certain places that didn't like subtitles in the rest of the world consumes international cinema through subtitles too. So everything is opening up. It's really about how good is your idea and how good is your ability to execute. That's really it. It's ideas and execution now. It's not who have just the links and the money. Those things play a role. But that's why I'm very encouraging of programs that find and fund short films, any opportunity for new talent to be unearthed, new storytelling talent, new directing talent, any opportunity for folks. Because a lot of filmmakers don't go to film school. They come from different industries. You work in advertising or you were a lawyer or, you know, Filmmaking is something that you're drawn to, that you love, and you either have to do or you don't. And it's a passion-driven thing for the most part, for most of us. So any opportunity for those great talents to have a chance to show themselves, that's really it, because you can see a good talent from a short. Because, I mean, I can see some young directors that have done amazing short work, and now I want to see what they'll do with a feature. And that's kind of how we we move. And in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, we've started Jamaica and... Film and Television Association, JAFTA. And that is where all the filmmakers, actors, production and other talent join to kind of lobby the government, address our concerns. Through JAFTA, we do training programs. We have a project called the JAFTA Propeller Project where there's funding for five short film scripts every year. So five short films are being made every year. And out of that, a bunch of new directing and other talent is emerging. So... Yeah, man, it's exciting times and the content is needed. So it's all about ideas. I want to know, Storm, what do you love about the filmmaking process, especially in Jamaica? When I'm shooting, I'm directing, when I'm manifesting something that I've dreamt about, this is like the whole ultimate human experience, brethren. Like, like a euphoria. It's a level of euphoria, a level of like connectedness, a level of like a certain divine a feeling of a flow. I definitely had scenes, like I remember I was shooting a scene in Sprinter where um, 
Akeem Sharp's character is walking home alone and uh, he's firing these um, rockets, these little fireworks into right. the air. Kind of a precursor to the Rasta rocket if you, if you, when you're pre to then. But just that kind of whistling into the air and that, and that wide angle. I saw that in a dream a long time before I shot that. You know, I mean, I saw that exactly. And I remember when we were shooting it, I was watching the actor walking through the frame and doing it. I was like, whoa, this was literally an idea. Now it's real. You know, now it's manifest. And that's the joy of making films. It is genuinely manifesting your dreams. You know, that is awesome, Jedi. Like, wow. <laughs> so like, what are the pain points though? Like, what is the, what is the major challenges? I mean, aside from getting the money. <laughs> Yeah, there's always a lot. Getting the money is a part of it. But to be honest, even with getting the money, it's getting the creative to the right point tends to be the thing. Because if you can get it to the right point, it can build a momentum. And once you get that first person to believe, it can start to steamroll. Filmmaking is problem solving. People always ask me what the hardest point was. It's like, I can't even remember, Bridget, because it's hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. It's like my um, producer Rob will always be like, "Hey, so we got good news, we got bad news," you know? <laughs> and I'm always getting two sides. But the good news always seems to win out. But everything from shooting in Jamaica and then shooting in the US and finding the right space during football season and track season, visas, you know, to bring talent here, getting the music and getting, making sure we had all the right music that we needed and making sure everyone could sign off on it. I mean, the thing about um, film. It's like juggling cats or something, <laughs> herding cats, as they call it. It's like you can never, it's always something jumping off and popping off and changing. And you have to be like water, I said. Yes. You have to be very adaptable. You have to keep your mind on the creative. It's not like Bruce Lee with that, with that quote. You have to be like fluid like water. <laughs> yes, yeah. You have to go over, around, under, one way or the other. You have to get through it. And that is what filmmaking is. It's a series of problem solving until, you know, you get to the promised land where the film is done, and then when it's done, you better have your next one ready because that's when everyone's going to want to have a meeting with you, and you really need to be able to drop that script in front of them. Right. So that's the process. Yeah. So in terms of marketing the film, though, I mean, I, I understand that for Better Must Come, you had a really interesting marketing strategy because, well, I don't know, it was lack of, lack of funding or lack of resources or so. But, you know, you staged a protest, you know, Better Must Come, Better Must yeah. Come. You know, tell us about that, man. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean... You know, you have to create moments of interest, points of interest. And that was just, a, you know, I was doing pretty much the marketing myself. And I just, there was this, you know, fashion's night out, it was called. And then there's this night where all the stores are open and discounts and hundreds, if not thousands of people I knew were going to be out in the streets. And I say, you know what? You know, this is too much of an opportunity here. We have to create something. And because Better Must Come such a disruptive thing and the political campaigning and protesting and stuff is such a, it's a visual that you know. And I said, you know what? Let's get protesters. And we went to the, the Edna Manley School of Drama, of Performing Arts. Right, and stuff. Right. We got some drama students. We created all these placards, but instead of like protest slogans, it was like bettermustcome.com and Facebook slash better must come and you know all these things and we created shirts we printed and then we just had them like pop up and just better must and because better must come is actually a slogan that has been used in politics before it kind of got people off guard and it's funny because people didn't know what to think and then of course I sent someone out there with a camera and to document that until the police shut us down and it's like you have to virality, you know, thinking of yeah. things that are going to go viral. It's just a part of how you kind of do it. And 
my brain as a filmmaker, I'm, I'm focused on the story, but I'm also very aware that we need people to sit there. People need to sit there and engage with that story. And I'm always know that if I can just get them in the room and get them in that seat, they're going to step away feeling something has been added to their world. And you have to find ways, you know? So you always have to be thinking like a marketer as well, I think. Okay, okay. So as we get ready to wrap up here, Storm, I want to know, you know, tell us where can we find you? Give us a spiel. Yeah. All right. Well, for me personally, I have a website, stormsalter.com. That's S-T-O-R-M-S-A-U-L-T-E-R.com. All my socials are at stormsalter. And then to follow Sprinter, go to sprinterthefilm.com. That's where you can reserve tickets to see the film. That's where you can see the list of cinemas that are going to be showing Sprinter. But also if we have hundreds of participating cinemas across the U.S. So if you don't see a, a cinema that it's showing in, you can request a cinema near you. And if you request to see the film and enough people in your area, you spread it on your social media, if enough people also show interest in seeing the film to reserve tickets, then it triggers a screening. So it's called theatrical on demand, meaning, you know, we bring the film where we know people want to see it. So go to sprinterthefilm.com for that. Follow all of our socials are sprinter the film and uh, spread the word because what we really want to do with this film, and we know this is a global film. We know it has legs and we want to, cut a path and prove an audience for our cinema. Because that's the thing, you know, people work off of algorithms and, oh, we know there's X amount of people that are, will be interested or based on our numbers. So we want to change those numbers. We want to update and show people how many people are interested in, in not just films of the Caribbean, just films of the African diaspora in general, stories about people of color, much more complex and interesting and fresh views. We want to prove that. You know, we want to shake up the old model. So, but we need people to get involved. You know, so I have to ask this question. So in terms of identity, like what has been your experience? I mean, all right, so we look, we look at you, we could tell you, you have some African in you, but you're clearly of mixed descent. So like, I'm sure that within the Caribbean, people perceive you different than say in America and Europe and everything, yeah. right? So how, how, how has that been for you in terms of channeling down on your identity when other people are kind of defining it for you? Yeah, I mean, I feel like definitely in my home country, people are, you know, there's a lot of pre-built-in um, thoughts and folks also are very good at projecting their thoughts about people onto others. So sometimes I'm just like a blank canvas for you to project your assumptions about my shade and uh, what comes with that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller. Like I've had sometimes have issues with it or rub it the wrong way, but in, in actuality, it really doesn't, you know. I am just happy that I was blessed to be a part of a family that saw and valued my creativity and let me know it was possible. I have been privileged to have that support. I am interested in, in uh, doing what I can because I, I, all of these um, preconceptions and stuff are, are it's a leftover thing of um, colonialism. You know what I mean? We're still dealing with that thing. And uh, I think that's why it's important to decolonize cinema. You know, I think cinema is a great tool that we can use to kind of try to decolonize certain mindsets. Because look, man, the, our history, the history in the Caribbean is full of holy but wickedness and sorrows, isn't yeah. it? And it's going to take a while to work those things out. And that's why I feel like we need to make sure as filmmakers we steer clear of these very stereotypical and locked-in thoughts of who we are as Caribbean people. And we need to be expanding on that continually. Our literature has done that for many years. So too has our music in, in, in some instances. And I think now it's time for us filmmakers to do it. So for me, 
I definitely am perceived certain ways, you know, in, in Jamaica, you know, I'm coming a brown man or this man or that man and assume I'm rich. But I'll come to America mm-hmm. where they, and they'll, you know, look at me in a totally different way. You know what I mean? I think I'm like some Latin man <laughs> coming in that place. You know what I mean? Uh, and everywhere I go is something else. But, you know, I feel like in the Caribbean, we're so mixed up that we actually are a bit of a signal of, of the future. And I don't mean me specifically. I mean our countries have people from everywhere, people that have been coexisting and coinciding and cultures that have been mixing and finding a way. Mm-hmm. Like, look at Trinidad, man. It's one of the most beautifully mixed cultures. You know what I mean? It has some of the most vibrant energy. And I think a lot of it has to do with everyone coming from everywhere and finding a place. So as we will always be a little bit of um, bumping and gear shifting to get it perfect, but that's what the whole world is going through. So that's why I think creating cinema in our space is creating global cinema because we're kind of hinting at what where the world is heading. Yeah, man, for real, for real. All right, so Storm, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't covered this evening? I'm giving you open mic, open forum, open platform. Yeah. All I want to say is, let's just say what we already know. Creatives and art and art movements have always been tapping into the Caribbean and tapping into our cultures to build up their own energy and their own swag and all of that. We see it, we know it, and we appreciate it. But you know what? The real power is when us Caribbean people are the ones, our vision, seeing the world from our perspective, looking outward. That's the perspective that is the freshest and that we need to be totally proud to, to jump into and to explore. So just know that the point of view that you have is unique. Just know that people want to see the world the way you can see it. People want to experience some of the joys and the ways that we connect that we do. So be proud of, of who you are, be confident in your storytelling and, um, you know, step forth with power and strength, you know, and as I said before, and I'll say again, you know, you take one step towards something, it will take two steps towards you. So know where you're heading. Podcast World, there you have it. Show me your story with Storm Salter. Subscribe to Caribbean Power Lunch at CaribbeanPowerLunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, Podcast World, Storm. Respect, man. Bless up. <laughs> Yes, Manny. Hey, I am so proud of myself that they did not try to chat Jamaican Patwa for the entire episode. I'm yeah. so proud of my, oh, my yeah. sister. I'm proud of you too, man. I'm proud. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. I'm you guys. So. <laughs> yeah, man. Podcast World, Cabin Studios, Jamaica, we are out.